Psychology in Seattle. Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. Please like us on Facebook. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also review us on iTunes. You can send us emails at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. We always love hearing from our listeners. And please keep the ship afloat by donating at psychologyinseattle.com. That's our website. You can go there and click on the donate button and donate, which will help us keep the ship afloat. Please do so. Today's music is provided by a very crappy Seattle band called Bread Knife Incident. That's my band. You know, uh, I spent a lot of time with the band recording the album, so I figured, you know, why not just throw that music on here? No one else is listening to it, so (laughs) just joking. Well, not really. Anyway, okay. You can also keep the podcast running and afloat by getting our music on iTunes, Bread Knife Incident. Bread Knife Incident. You can also support us by telling friends about us, particularly if they're in the field. You know, other shrinks, other therapists, other counselors, other people interested in psychology might be interested in this podcast. You know, tell them about it. Today I'm going to be talking about Milton Erickson, Jay Haley, and a book that Jay Haley wrote about Milton Erickson called Uncommon Therapy. It was written in uh, 1973. Jay Haley and Milton Erickson are known in the family therapy world. Milton Erickson was a psychiatrist that practiced in Arizona, and his techniques are very, let's say, avant-garde. And Jay Haley considered Milton Erickson to be his mentor. Milton Erickson had a a big effect on Jay Haley and on strategic family therapy. Milton Erickson's techniques and theory also influenced solution-focused therapy and just family therapy in general. I recently came across this book called Uncommon Therapy, The Psychiatric Techniques of Milton H. Erickson, M.D. This is a book written by Jay Haley. So Jay Haley was a family therapist, a pioneering family therapist in the 60s and 70s and 80s, who is associated with California Palo Alto therapists at the Mental Research Institute. And Jay Haley wrote this book, Uncommon Therapy, about the techniques of Milton Erickson because they're they're very, as I said, avant-garde, very strange. So this is a very stimulating and entertaining book, I'll say. The book in 19, written in 1973 basically introduced Erickson's uncommon therapy techniques to the clinical world. This book is probably a good introduction into the venerated work of Erickson. There are some people who really venerate Erickson, even to this day. Basically, in the book, Jay Haley describes Erickson working with several clients. And Jay Haley talks about how Erickson very quickly cures a lot of these clients of their issues. There are clients who are pain victims. They are elderly people. Well, they're really people of all ages. That's how the book is organized by different age groups. People come to Erickson with terminal illnesses. They are children who are bedwetting. There are couples in conflict. There are teens that are thumb-sucking and wish to stop thumb-sucking. There are really a wide variety of clients that come to Erickson. It should also be noted that Erickson was a hypnotist. He did a lot of hypnotherapy, and this is not an area that I'm that I'm familiar with. So I'm not going to comment much on hypnotherapy, but it was a big part of Erickson's work. But he didn't always hypnotize his clients. But he actually considered therapy to be somewhat of a hypnagogic state. 
meaning that it's a trance state just entering therapy and that he would make suggestions or he would do things to manipulate people's state of mind so that they were more open to suggestions. And I'll say on the onset here that most therapists today, most contemporary therapists today would consider Erickson's techniques to be too manipulative of clients. And I would say that I would I would agree with that. There are some techniques that I might use of Erickson's, but really 99.9% of it is either what I would consider to be too disrespectful of clients or just too manipulative or potentially unethical. So I'll get into that in a second. Milton Erickson's philosophy, though, really affected family therapy and, and solution-focused therapy and strategic family therapy. So I thought I'd just go into some of that. I don't know if it's because he operated in Arizona in isolation, but he had a lot of strange ideas in the 60s compared to other psychiatrists. For instance, he de-emphasized and eliminated diagnostic labels. He was not concerned with labels like schizophrenia or depression or anxiety. He just he either downplayed those labels or he just completely eliminated them when, when clients came in to talk to him. He also believed that people have the power to solve their own problems. This is a very revolutionary idea at the time, and now it's it's becoming much more mainstream, this idea that people can solve their own problems, that we as therapists don't cure people, but we just lead people to their own cures, that people have the power to cure themselves. And I'll also say that Erickson never had a theory, so to speak. He actually just didn't like theory in general. He thought that it was limiting to therapists to to have a model that we would impose upon a client. Um, instead, Erickson wanted to find out what solutions were within the client. At least that's what he said. But I would say that he actually did impose a model upon the clients. He believed in certain things that he did, but it was sort of random, or at least he didn't he didn't describe it as having a form to it. But if you read enough of it, you, you can see that he, he clearly had ideas about what direction that he would take. And, and also another aspect of this book, I'm getting a little off track, but another aspect of this book is that it's, it's just hundreds of stories of success. Every story is unquestionably miraculously successful, which makes me very skeptical of the entire book. Sometimes when people want to be venerated or when they're trying to propose a certain model of therapy, they talk only about the successes as a way of promoting that form of therapy. But most contemporary therapists and readers understand that, that there isn't any one model of therapy that is successful all the time. And, and really, every model has its problems and every model isn't going to work for everybody. So, plus, it's just strange to read a book that doesn't talk at all about the shortcomings of the model. It, it just goes on and on about how wonderful Milton Erickson was and how he did everything perfectly and how everyone was cured. I mean, it's almost comical, honestly, when you read it. Now, at the time, in 1973, I'm guessing that there, weren't a, there wasn't a lot of, shall we say, humble accounts of therapy that most doctors talked about themselves as, as being 100% successful all the time. Maybe it's because they wanted to instill confidence or maybe they're just completely arrogant or they're trying to push a particular idea forward. I think most people today are more humble when they make claims, particularly because they have research now. We have ways of actually looking into this sort of thing. If, if Milton Erickson and Jay Haley were to come with this book today, I think most people would say, well, where's the proof? You're claiming that you're curing all these people. Where, where's the proof? There's some good and bad aspects to that, actually, because sometimes therapy can be wonderful for people, but you can't really prove it. And other forms of therapy are more easily proven as effective in terms of scientific 
scientific proof. Sometimes there's a problem. Anyway, I'm getting way off track. So Erickson's ideas, um, getting back to the list, are, um, you know, he de-emphasized diagnostic labels. He believed that people had the power to solve their own problems. He also de-emphasized theory in general. He also believed that change is very brief. He believed that you didn't have to be in therapy for a long time. And this was very different, I think, from therapists at the time in 1973 in the 60s. In the 70s, they a lot of therapists were psychoanalysts and believed that it would take years and you had to be in therapy three times a week and it had to go on forever. And it was all insight-based and discovery-based and you really had to dig deep into your unconscious. But Erickson believed that he could cure someone in five minutes. Which, you know, obviously has some problems monetarily for clinicians, because if you can solve people's problems in five minutes, you can't charge them very much. So I, I think in the 70s and 80s and 90s, well, let's say 70s and 80s, when brief therapy was first being proposed, I think it was threatening a lot of people's income, let's say. Another belief of Erickson's that he seemingly held was that change is carefully planned by the therapist. This is where the word strategic family therapy comes in, because Erickson believed and Jay Haley believed this too, actually, that change was carefully planned by the therapist, that the that the therapist strategized about how to change the client or the family. It's like a strategic missile. You have a missile that is very precise and, you know, it has a laser guided system and it goes right for exactly what you're trying to get. And so strategic family therapists and Erickson would, they would think about this one intervention that they could do that would solve all their problems. They, they didn't consider therapy to be this long drawn out process. Erickson seemed to also believe that insight was not required. He did not think that the client needed to know anything about themselves, that it's, it's in this way, Erickson was kind of a behaviorist to some extent. He, he believed that if you just changed your behavior, that you didn't need to know why, but things would change for you. But at the same time, he did believe in a psyche of some sort because he did believe that certain processes in your brain would change as a result of changing your behavior. Another idea that Erickson seemed to believe in that influenced strategic family therapy later was that the therapist takes responsibility for directly influencing people. This is a little bit different than other forms of therapy in that the therapist says, I am responsible for curing this, this family. I am responsible for coming up with an intervention that is going to cure this family. And Erickson didn't always believe this, but he, he did, I think, most of the time. And Jay Haley seemed to embody this as well. Another idea that Erickson and Haley seemed to believe in was that the therapist must gain the trust of the client. So in order for Erickson to help people, he believed that he must gain the trust of the client in order to affect them. So, But this wasn't necessarily done by being empathic and compassionate the way that we might normally think of therapists today. Erickson was more concerned about from A to B, what was the quickest way to get the client to trust you. And so one of the things that he might do is instead of spending a lot of time listening to someone and being compassionate, he might just say to the client, like, um, what's something I can think of from the book? I seem to remember reading a passage about him with a, a younger client, a teenage client maybe, and he used the word hell. He swore in front of the client. And I think that was a way of him trying to contradict what the client was thinking about him. So one of the things that strategic family therapists do and Erickson does is they work with resistance. They, instead of trying to break down resistance, instead of trying to make a client conform to therapy, they work with the resistance. And I incidentally will do this sometimes with clients who are not enthusiastic about therapy. If a client says, I don't want to be in therapy, this is ridiculous. So a traditional therapist or a, a non- 
Ericksonian therapist might try to convince a client of what therapy can do for them. They might try to show them what therapy is and what they can do. But Erickson would say, yeah, therapist, you know, therapy is ridiculous. And Erickson might even start acting very strange as if, uh, as if he doesn't care about therapy. Like Erickson, an Erickson thing, I don't know if he actually did this, but an Erickson thing he might do, say, uh, you know, there's a 18 year old young man who's in therapy and he says, I don't want to be in therapy. My parents are making me be here. And he says, yeah, therapy sucks. You know, who's, what's wrong with your parents? You know, why would they do that? And, and, and why would they send you to therapy? And this would be Erickson's idea of trying to, trying to work with the resistance and, and trying, you know, the client thinks that Milton Erickson is going to be insulted, insulted by this. And, and the client might assume that the therapist would try to fight back and try to argue with the client say, no, therapy is good. But instead, Erickson goes with it. And by doing this, I think Erickson believed that he was getting into the stream of consciousness of the client. And I don't know if that's the term he would use, but if you get into the mode of the client, it's almost like you're putting them in a trance and then they're more open to suggestion. So I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but, but there you go. Another idea that might be considered within Erickson's theory was that therapists can induce change by indirectly suggesting behavior to break out of old patterns. So this is kind of in line with what I've already been talking about, but Erickson believed that he could change people. He could help them reach their goal by indirectly suggesting behavior just to break out of old patterns. For instance, he had a client who was phobic about getting on a train. And so he asked her or really told her, prescribed to her that the next time she got on a train that she should close her eyes and walk backwards onto the train. And so by suggesting this weird behavior, the idea is, is that it breaks the pattern of the client. So normally the client approaches the train and sees the train and gets scared. But instead, the client is now turning around, walking backwards and with their eyes closed, walking on, to, walk, walking on the train. You might say, well, maybe it's just distracting the client from the phobia. And I might agree with that. But Erickson believed that by breaking the pattern, a new reality is created, that people get into these patterns where realities are created and if you break that, then people are more open to, to new realities. And incidentally, of course, the, the prescription worked when, when Erickson prescribed this immediately. It, he told the client to walk backwards onto a train. And honestly, I can't imagine that working every time. Um, I mean, in terms of the people I know that have anxiety, if you just told them to do something random like that, I, I imagine it might work for some people, but I imagine for a lot of people it would not work. Um, anxiety is not that simple in my experience. But who knows, maybe Erickson's a genius. And also, uh, I think in today's world, you it would be hard to find a client that would do what you tell them to do. Uh, throughout this book, Uncommon Therapy by Jay Haley, Jay Haley talks about Erickson giving all these prescriptions to clients. And the clients just do it. They, they don't question it. They just do it. And I, I think it's because back then in the 60s and the early 70s, clients did what their doctors told them to do. They just didn't question. They just did it. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it, from the book's account, it certainly seems that way. And I imagine that if you try to do these interventions today, that clients would say, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. And, you know, I, I, I think that's a good thing. I think clients, I think people should question the prescriptions from their professionals because, you know, professionals aren't gods. They don't know everything. But I think back in the 60s and se early 70s, I think that maybe that was more prevalent, that belief that doctors and professionals are super experts, that they just know everything. 
everything and they're never wrong. So I think that worked in Erickson's benefit, honestly. As an example, uh, this this client that he talks about that he with the phobia uh, regarding trains, the client also this client was engaged. This female client was engaged, but was afraid of getting married because she was afraid of having sex, I believe. And when Erickson asked, asked her about sex, when the subject of sex came up in therapy, the client would become deaf and blind. So what Erickson did, let me just read that section, actually. I'll preface this by saying I find this practice of Erickson to be highly unethical. So I don't want you to think that I would, that I'm going along with this practice. Okay, so um, this is uh, Erickson talking. I told her the next time she came in for an interview, I wanted her to bring in her handbag the shortest pair of short shorts imaginable. I said that she was going to take them out of the bag and show them to me. So, um, so she did that. So the client came into Erickson for a session and showed him these very short shorts that she had um, in her possession. Okay, so back to the book. Then I gave her a choice. At the next interview with me, she would either walk in wearing those short shorts or she would put them on in my office. She made her preference and chose to walk in wearing them. All right. So right here we have an ethical problem of telling a client to potentially disrobe in front of him and, and even wearing very short shorts. Can, can you imagine your therapist telling you to wear very short shorts to therapy while you talk about while you're talking about sex? It's this is a, a boundary crossing and harm is potentially done. And I just got to figure that since Haley is writing about this in 1973, that he was not concerned about telling the story. And I'm guessing that psychiatry was practiced much differently back then because you could not do this. And if you did, you would not write about it in a book. And there are several stories like this. This is not an anomalous story. Okay, so back to the book. So this is Erickson talking. I wanted to talk about sex with her as part of her preparation for marriage. So I said, now you're going to listen to me when I discuss sex, or I'll have you take those shorts off and put them on in my presence. She listened to me on the subject of sex and was not deaf or blind. So basically, he has her wear these very short shorts in session. And he says, now either I'm going to talk about sex or you're going to take off those pants. Either I'm going to talk about sex in front of you and you're going to listen to it, or you're going to take off your shorts. Now, can you imagine your psychiatrist telling you that? Erickson doesn't care if she's been sexually abused. He doesn't care if she's been traumatized. She doesn't care why she goes deaf and blind when the subject of sex comes up. I'm guessing he just wants her to be able to tolerate sexual content in life. And he puts her in this situation where she either has to expose herself to sexual content or she has to be humiliated or potentially feeling sexually abused by taking off these shorts. And so she chooses to keep her shorts on while listening to him talk about sex. And now, did he cure her? He, he says he did. And maybe he did. And so in the end, maybe it was for the best. But honestly, given the fact that every story in this book is successful, I'm, I'm skeptical of it. And I can't imagine what she went through. And then he, uh, Erickson concludes by saying that she got married and she has two children now period. And that's it. That's all he discusses. But by that statement, he is basically saying he cured her, that she got married and she had children and 
therefore that's all you need to know. She's cured. Now I would have a question of if I went to her at this point after she had these two kids and I would say, what did you think about Erickson's therapy? She might say, I'm guessing, you know, who knows? God knows what she would say, but I think it's very possible. She would say, I hated that guy. He abused me in therapy. I felt awful and he was disgusting and I never went back to him again. And whenever he asked me how things were going, I said things were fine because I just wanted to get him off my back. I think that's entirely possible. Now, I have no idea, of course, and but anyway, so that's just one story. He, there's other stories like just to kind of bash the book a bit. There's a there's another story about how a woman, a young woman, comes in complaining that her breasts are very small and she's very anxious about this and she feels very judged. And instead of talking with her about trying to help her have better uh, a better self esteem and to base her self worth on other things besides her breast size and to think about how she can find people around her that value her for who she is. Instead, the goal is to make her breast bigger. And so what he does is he hypnotizes her to do various different things. And in the end, her breasts get bigger over time. There's a, there's a span of time and her breasts get bigger. And Erickson says, did her breasts get bigger because of the therapy? I don't know. Maybe she just grew older. I don't know. But maybe it was the, maybe it was the therapy. Now, again, back then, I don't know how many people believed that hypnotherapy could increase someone's breast size. And honestly, I, there's probably several people who believe that today. And maybe it's even true. Um, it's just such a funny topic, honestly. So, so there's all sorts of sexism involved in this, in this book. There's also, there's, there's a lot of evidence of sexism. There's a lot of evidence of conservatism. Um, basically, Erickson wants everyone to fit into this mold of you get married and you have kids. And there's another example here. Um, this is, you know, heterosexist. Uh, this is Jay Haley talking. A more extreme example of Erickson's long-term therapy was his work with a young man who was a migratory laborer with homosexual leanings. So uh, we have a client here that's coming in to Erickson who has, quote-unquote, homosexual leanings. And in the end, the man, this this man with, quote-unquote, homosexual leanings, who considered himself a moron, quote-unquote, in the end, Erickson thought after long-term therapy with Erickson, Erickson and Jay Haley claimed success by the fact that the client was going to church, he was finishing college, and he knew that he wanted a wife, a home, and children. And he knew that he wanted to marry a woman and to have children. This was seen as success in therapy. And again, back then, I'm not a historian. I know that homosexuality was considered to be a disorder. So was Erickson just going along with what most psychiatry was doing at the time? Yes. But still, it's just, I don't know, it's just hard to read for me, honestly. Another example I remember hearing, and I might misquote it, so uh, take it with a grain of salt, but one example I remember reading about was a client comes to Erickson saying that she's overweight and she wants to change that or something. Again, instead of talking about her self-esteem, he just wants to help her achieve her goal. So what he does is, as she sits down and tells him about her problem, he grabs a paperweight off of his desk and fixates on this paperweight. He's holding it in his hand. He's looking at this paperweight. And every once in a while, he looks up at her and he says, oh, oh, I'm listening. You know, 
continue. And then he goes back to fixating on his paperweight. And then at the end of her talking about her problems, he puts the paperweight down and he says, I'm really sorry that I couldn't look at you, but it was because I'm so sexually attracted to you that I, I couldn't keep looking at you. And I just can't imagine how sexually attractive you will be once you shed the blubber that is surrounding the real you. So again, these are, I mean, just really strange therapeutic techniques that, um, again, I don't know any therapist that would do something like that today. And again, he claims, and Jay Haley claims, complete success in that intervention. And maybe maybe it did work. One of the central ideas in Erickson's therapy and in strategic therapy is that you don't have to tell a client why you're doing what you're doing. It just has to work. So you, you strategically do something. And this, this Erickson technique of looking at his, his paperweight and talking about her being, you know, very attractive and is this very strategic thing and, and not true. Erickson doesn't believe this. He's not saying I was actually attracted to her. And he, he actually was doing this to manipulate her. And most therapists uh, would blanch at such a prospect of manipulating a client or lying to a client. But I'm guessing there are therapists out there that do this. And I suppose if it works, then great. Another idea that Erickson seemed to believe in was that each client requires a unique approach. And I think I've talked somewhat around this issue is that each client requires a very unique strategic intervention that a therapist cannot adopt a model and, and apply it to clients in general, or even have a number of models to apply to various clients. But Erickson believed that every client requires a unique approach, a unique model that is specifically tailored just for that client. Another idea that Erickson seemed to believe in is that the therapist can bypass client resistance by using a paradoxical directive. An example of a paradoxical directive, Erickson might tell a client to purposely be depressed, which creates a paradox of control over the symptom and thereby relieving the symptom. So in other words, if a client says, I'm very depressed, I don't know what to do, Erickson might say, okay, tomorrow I want you to be depressed. I want you to be as depressed as you possibly can be for an hour from noon until one, okay? So I, and he wouldn't just say it like that. He would really lead up to it and emphasize it. He said, okay, from 11 to one, he might even say something like, I'm going to call you at 11 and that will signify the beginning of your major depressive episode until one o'clock and then one o'clock I want it to be over. And again, this is at a time when clients would actually do what their therapist said. I imagine if a therapist said that to a client today, they'd say you're nuts and they would never come back. But back then they would do it. And so the client would do that. And the paradox is that people don't want to be depressed, right? They can't, they're trying not to be depressed. And so they're constantly, potentially, in one way of seeing it, is that they're constantly pushing back against the depression. They're fighting the depression, so to speak. And if they purposely become depressed, then it creates this paradox because they're no longer fighting against something. They're actually voluntarily becoming depressed and therefore have some power over the depression. Now, people who are actually depressed would say that's ridiculous. If that's all it took, then I would have done that a long time ago and I would agree with that. I think that the idea is a good one, or at least one to keep in mind, maybe, that maybe sometimes this sort of thing might help. But to think that it's a panacea is really, I think, misdirected. Or even to think that it 
works, say, most of the time, I think is probably inaccurate. And usually the, the thing I say to my students is if you're going to use these things, one, you should really make sure that you do them very carefully, that you have good supervision, that you have good training, and also that maybe you should use these only as a last resort, honestly. If you find that you cannot find success with a client, that maybe doing something like this would be a good idea considering that nothing else is working. But I, I still don't really know. And again, if anyone did it, I, I think they should have a lot of supervision around it because you could really hurt someone, I think, if, if you did this sort of thing. Another thing that Erickson liked to do was he liked to use metaphor. So, for instance, there I think one example I remember reading about was there is a couple who is no longer having sex. They've been married for 25 years and, and they haven't had sex in six months or something. And Erickson believes, or at least the client, maybe the clients are saying that they, they wish they had a better intimate life. And so Erickson might say, well, okay, and might start talking about random things that get them off the idea of sex, or at least get this, you know, the subject of sex out of their mind. And then he might start talking about, say, cooking a meal together or something. You know, let's say that they both cook and you might say, okay, well, so, you know, when, when you guys cook a meal together, what do you guys like to do? And, and, and the wife might uh, say something like, well, I like to uh, get out the cookbook and I like to, you know, look at the different pictures and, and I like to see what inspires me. And the husband might say, um, something like, I just like to, you know, slap the meat down on the grill and, and, and cook it up and eat it right away. I don't like to spend too much time thinking about it. And this example is actually somewhat similar to the one that was given in the book. I'm, I'm not trying to be funny in this, although it is coming out that way. So in Erickson's mind, he's thinking, okay, we're not really, we're not talking about cooking, right? We're talking about sex right now. And so by talking about cooking, I'm going to indirectly affect their sex life. And so he might say something like, oh, I see. Okay. So you, you know, Mr. Johnson, you, you like to just go for it. You just, you know, you, you don't like to uh, look at the recipe book. You don't like to take the time to, to do that. You just like to go for it. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and Mrs. Johnson, you, you like to take your time. You, you like, you know, you like to gear up for it. Yeah, I like to gear up for it. Oh, I see. So in order for it to really work well, it sounds like you have to strike a balance there. It looks like maybe you uh, take out the recipe book and you look at it, but you don't spend all night looking at it. You got to eventually slap that meat down on the grill, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, it sounds funny as I'm saying it. Um, and so... Erickson would, would talk in detail about this and walk people through it and help them come to a compromise around cooking, knowing or thinking that this would actually be analogous to their sex life. It would be a metaphor for their sex life. I think Jay Haley might have done this sort of thing, too. Now, in this way, I would say that Erickson is not being disrespectful to his clients, even though he has an idea in his mind that he's not sharing with the clients. And that intervention, I don't think is a bad idea or, or unethical or, or mean to a client. And I think that that's one of the things that one can get from this book and about Erickson is, is these sorts of interventions that are, that are in this category where they, they don't seem to be that disrespectful of a client and, and, and they might actually work. And interventions like these actually in the book, I appreciate. I appreciated reading interventions like this. I think that they can be useful. All right, so that is the book Uncommon Therapy, The Psychiatric Techniques of Milton H. Erickson, M.D., written by Jay Haley in 1973. So there you go. All right, news. I'm Mandy Kirk's cousin. And I'm Umberto Castaneda. I'm an old lamp shade collector. 
Hmm. Why? I was a big fan of Mr. Rogers growing up. Mm-hmm. In one episode, uh, he was at someone's house and they had a lot of old lampshades. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's curious. Who would collect old lampshades? And then I thought, I'm going to grow up to be that person. That is the most random thing you've ever said. And you said some random things. <laughs> you can like us on Facebook. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also leave a review for us on iTunes. Someone actually left a nice review. Remember how I was saying people were giving us five stars, but they weren't actually saying anything about us? Someone actually said something about us on iTunes. And guess what they said? They hate us. No, just joking. They said they love us. It was a nice That's thing to nice. say. They said they always like... I can't remember the exact wording. But anyway, it was a nice <laughs> nice thing that they said. Thank you very much. You can also donate by going to psychologyinseattle.com and clicking on the donate button. We are trying to raise money for various things, including going to the Penis Festival in Japan. Right, Mandy? You got it. And you can also email us by emailing contact <laughs> at psychologyinseattle.com. And news. What's in the news, Mandy? Uh, I won't name any names, but uh, I know someone who owns a hybrid vehicle. Me. All right, since it's out, Kirk owns a hybrid. I was reading on the news today that hybrid owners are unlikely to buy another one. Nearly two out of three hybrid owners wind up returning to a more conventional vehicle at trade-in time. Really? Any thoughts as a hybrid owner? Well, as a Honda hybrid owner, I will say that it has zero guts. Right. The car, when I, I can floor it at a, at a stop at a stoplight, and I am I am the slowest one off the block. I really? know you yeah. are, and you always tell me it's gutless. Yeah, I always thought it would be the opposite because the electric. Well, sometimes the battery gets depleted for whatever oh. reasons, particularly inner city driving. Oh. I mean, I'll be trying to go up a hill, and I'll have it floored, and I'll be going like three miles an hour, and people are honking behind. me. What are you doing? And as a traditional Honda car owner, I've got some pickup. I've yeah. got some zip. And Kirk often says, gosh, I wish I had a regular I know. You, you, you have a Civic, which is not the <laughs> the most high horsepower of, no, of but cars. It's, but uh, it has so much more guts than... Sure. It can go. I get it going. Yeah. Have you modded it? Nos. <laughs> no, Nos. I'm not... And, uh, the super, fast and the Mandy. Super Asian rice burner. No, I hate that shit. <laughs> Mandy drift. <laughs> the fast and the Mandy, isn't that redundant? Oh, oh. but I'm bump. All right. All right. Tougher block. Oh, uh, by the way. Yeah. Uh, one thing. We had that episode a few episodes ago about the uh, differentiation. Oh, that's right. And uh, there was some negative comments uh, made on the on the video because of what I said that I I theorized or hypothesized that Hitler might have been differentiated because he was so stubborn and always wanted to get his way and all these things. Well, essentially what you were saying, what I was saying was the term differentiation refers to people who can do things without being influenced by others. Right. They can act independently. They're not, they're not anxious about the approval of others. And you were saying that, Oh, well maybe Newt Gingrich is, is very differentiated. And I was thinking, ah, I never really thought about that before. And then you, and I went to the extreme, which was Hitler. Yeah. Now, the thing is, I actually hadn't read enough about the topic, and also, I, I didn't get the sense that differentiation was generally positive. The way we were talking about it, I thought, well, it could be good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I went back and read through the topic, because the negative comments were like, well, no, that traditionally, or if you really look at his life and his terrible, terrible decisions and, and everything he did, uh, 
it, it seems like um, it, he wasn't very differentiated at all. It was the, the opposite. Those were the comments. Right. And I had no basis to agree or disagree. I was just like hypothesizing. Yeah. But I went back, read through the definitions, and really like what, what constitutes differentiation. And it makes a lot of sense that he wouldn't be because essentially he was project. His whole life was one big-ass projection. Mm. And it was uh, insecurities left and right. What I was at the, at the time saying was that, and I don't even know that much about Hitler, but I do know that towards the end of his uh, career, if you will call it that, uh, he was not listening to any of his generals and making all these random ass decisions that he wanted to do. But so I, I uh, had the misconception that, well, then therefore he was differentiated. Right. And I'll just say that the term differentiation is not something that we can measure scientifically. So it's really a right. philosophy that we apply to human beings. And you could make a case either way, honestly. But I think most people would say that based on what we know about Hitler, which isn't really knowing him like we would know a client, we could say that he wasn't very differentiated because right. he, he destroyed an entire population of individuals. They would say that truly differentiated people are altruistic at the same time as they are thinking about their own needs, that they, they, right. can, they can act upon their own desires, their own wants, their own needs without necessarily being unduly inf- influenced by other people, but they also allow influence from other people right. when it is appropriate to do so. So that makes sense. Yeah. Sorry, uh, internets. <laughs> All right. Uh, tough for bluff. bluff. In the Hoth battle, Luke was red leader. Tough for bluff. In the Hoth battle, Luke was red leader. Tough for bluff. No, bluff. Uh, tough. What do you think he was? We were talking about in the last one that Hoth was in Norway, and oh, I don't. Uh, right? What does that have to do with this? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> with this call sign. <laughs> Um, well, Norway's not red. <laughs> uh, I just don't really remember there being... I, I don't remember. It might have been orange later. No. I mean, I'm just thinking... Never mind. I'll explain it to you later. Explain now. No. Why not? No. Why not? No. <laughs> All right. In the Hoth battle, Luke was actually rogue leader. A uh, rogue. Well, rogue red. It's close. It was It was a bluff. God, started. So is there an explanation for no. why? No. <laughs> I got confused. <laughs> I'm really tired. The only thing I can say is I need to rewatch the original three because it's been so long. And now I feel like an idiot because I forget things like this. Yeah. yeah like, like, like Wedge and... and uh, I know. And Porkins. Like, TIE Fighter stands for what? But that was never in the movie. They never said TIE Fighters stand for this. That's something... Yeah, but I thought you guys were, like, big nerd fans. Well, I was. It's just I've been damaged by the the subsequent stuff, and so I'm still in Blame who you will. The sun was in my eyes. What? There was this annoying light in the movie theater. Wham, wham, wham. Oh, my God. (laughs) What? Uh, You guys got some slutty digs in on me earlier. I'm just... I'm just saying. (laughs) She's got bite. (laughs) Wow. She's like a curled up snake. Right you didn't there. just see. You didn't just see the finger. She just waved at finger us. Finger wagon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So though you have whatever excuses for being not so brushed up on Star Wars, Umberto, <laughs> we've got another one. Tough or bluff? The following characters who have had a bad feeling about this were C three PO, Princess Leia, and Luke Skywalker. Okay. Tough or bluff? So that's a bluff. Okay, I'm saying bluff because I know Lando. So. Yes, but I don't know what movie we're talking about. Is it just Star Wars? I didn't specify a movie. It includes all of the movies. Okay, well, what about Anakin? 
Did Anakin actually say that? Uh, no, sorry, Obi Wan did. Yeah, I think Obi Wan. I've got a bad feeling about this. Get it? We're Star Wars. We're starting the movie with that call. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's the very self. Anyway, so is it tough or bluff? So these were more from the original trilogies. It's bluff. Yeah. The three that said it were C three PO, Princess Leia, and Han Solo. Lando doesn't say I have a. See bad also building. Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope and Star Wars Episode oh, Five: The so Empire tough? Strikes Back. So it's tough. No, I said Luke Skywalker. Oh, uh, it's no. bluff. I thought Lando I said thought it. Lando says it. No, in, in Return. Yeah, I thought he's like I got a got bad, bad feeling, feeling about this. this. I gotta look that up. Yeah, you oh, or, I don't know. I don't know. Blame IMDb. Uh, well, I, I don't not believe you. It's just weird. okay. I'm, okay, I'm gonna type in. Does Lando say I? Have a bad feeling about this. I have a bad feeling about this. Wookopedia. Wookopedia. Uh, let's see. Episode one, Obi Wan. Episode two, Anakin. Episode three, Obi Wan. Episode four, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo say it. Episode five, Princess Leia. Episode 6, C-3PO. Episode 6, Han Solo. Lando never says it. That's weird. A lot of fucking people say it, though. Yeah, but yeah. I, I could have sworn Except Lando for Lando. I could have sworn Lando well, said Well, you are going to have to really get serious about rewatching. I them. guess so. Have you dedicated enough time to this? No, apparently I haven't put in my time. As a real fan? No, apparently not. So I let me tell bad. you when they said it in the original trilogy. So, I have a very bad feeling about this, Luke Skywalker says, when the Millennium Falcon approaches the Death Star. Hmm. I, I've got a bad feeling about this, Han Solo, before the walls of the trash compactor start to close in. Star Wars uh, Episode Five: Empire Strikes Back. I have a bad feeling about this, Princess Leia, when they're inside the be- the belly of the space slug. Did yeah. you know it was called the space slug? Yep. That's a lame name. Well, it wasn't called that in the movie. <laughs> re- re- Return, Return of the Jedi, uh, C-3PO, R2. I have a very bad feeling about this when entering Jabba the Hutt's palace. And Han Solo says, I have a really bad feeling about this after the Ewoks capture the strike team. That sounds like a late time to say it. <laughs> oh, we've been captured. I have a really bad feeling. About <laughs> we got captured by little fuzzy brown. <laughs> it's one thing, like, you're not predicting much at that point. It's one thing, like, you wake up in the morning and you just randomly look around and say, I have a bad feeling about this. Okay, you have powers of prognostication. Yeah. But that... Yeah, I mean, you're already captured. You're captured. Wow, you're a fucking psychic, Han. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks for the warning, dickface. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Wait, how did they know about Sherlock Holmes in that universe? Yeah, that's right. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So actually, uh, it's funny. I remember hearing about like a criticism of Lord of the Rings when the orcs or the urukai or whatever uh-huh. they're saying i guess meat's back on the menu boys do you remember that that line i, I do i do yes when they tore apart one of their fellow you know their urukai i guess meat's back on the menu and i remember someone saying meat wasn't invented yet no <laughs> like do urukai really eat at restaurants with where there's menus <laughs> oh right right why was there a menu <laughs> what right that's a huge that's hole a i know that makes the reference. whole trilogy like no longer applicable <laughs> i know cover bluff all right uh the original name of gi joe the the toy line and the whole thing uh-huh. was adventure team uh, i could see that being tough i'll say tough um bluff okay well mandy's technically right however it was called adventure team from 1970 to 1976 because hasbro wanted to downplay the whole uh war angle because of the vietnam war mm. so they renamed 
it to Adventure Team, and they had an AT logo on their clothing. Adventure Team. Adventure Team. My older brother had a big GI Joe, like the the, <laughs> the foot the foot 12, tall. 12 inch. Here comes another. I'm jealous of my brother story. My bo- my older brother had this GI Joe. I didn't have. My little brother had this. Well, my older brother had the big GI Joe, the original, right. and my little brother had a billion GI a billion Joe, of the little ones of the three. And 3. Kurt 7. got a nickel. <laughs> where, where, where? See, I have. I'm I'm on both of your. Yeah, no, man. Right. And I would ruthless. like to point out back to the the uh, orcs uh, and the menu uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the orcs in the menu. I thought, you know what? I bet they had menus in Middle Earth. Let's just say you stop by the a little pub in the Shire. Yeah, and you have a you order a pint from you know whatever a pint a pint. pint. I bet they had a menu for what you ordered. Yeah. They had but menus. not the orcs, but not the urukai. I'm just saying back then there were menus. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet that there were offerings at your neighborhood pub. Right. At the Green Dragon. Right. Oh, I so, should have done that as a as a. You as should a have done bluff. that as a... As a... So All right. there you go. Tougher bluff. No, <laughs> tougher bluff. No moon in our solar system is larger than Pluto. Tougher bluff. That's no moon. That's a space station. Yeah. <laughs> tougher bluff. No, no moon in our solar system is larger than Pluto. Bluff. No moon in our solar system is... Larger than Pluto. That's that is a bluff. Why do you say that? Because uh, Jupiter's and Saturn's moons are. Uh, what's that one? I forget their names, but they have big moons. Mm-hmm. It's bluff. How many moons in our solar system do you think are bigger than Pluto? All of them. <laughs> no, no uh, five, seven. Oh, uh, let's see if I can name them: uh, Ganymede, Titan, our own moon, Io, Io, Io. Uh, that's as far as my list goes in okay. my head. <laughs> I think Ganymede's the biggest one. Titan's number two. Our moon is up there pretty high. And it's just another reason why Pluto should not be considered a planet. I mean, seven... I know. But a lot of people are upset about it. I'm upset. But seven moons, our own moon, is bigger than Pluto. Size doesn't matter for planets. Yeah. Size doesn't matter for... Lots of things? Yeah. All right, tougher love. The dancer that Jabba drops into the Rancor pit loses her top as she falls in. <gasps> She's, that's the oh. green chick, right? Oh, I'm definitely rewatching Return of the Jedi now. <laughs> on, on Blu-ray? Uh, and 3D? Pause. I have it on Blu-ray. Expand. Enhance. Uh, I'm going to say bluff because I think I would have known that at the age of 13 when I saw that movie. I want it to be true, so tough. Apparently it's tough. <gasps> really? Oh that's what it said on... But you can't see it on the movie. It probably happened. This is the girl with the green... Yeah, I like that. The green titties. I liked her hair. Rewatch it. Many a good reason to All watch right. the trilogy right. on Berto. Okay. This last December, 2011, there was a comet that went through the sun. Tougher bluff. What do you mean through the sun? It went through the sun. A comet went through the sun. Physically... Physically. Entered... Th- entered and exited... Through the sun. Uh, bluff. Bluff. That's impossible. Are you really going with bluff? I'm really going with bluff. Okay, well, you guys impossible. are both wrong. No, I'm serious. That's serious. Comet Lovejoy, December 16, 2011. Anyways, it plunges through, lost a lot of its mass, and still came out of the sun. They got it on video. You can go to YouTube, type Comet Lovejoy, and watch it going through the freaking sun. I did not think the comet's icy core was big enough to survive plunging through the several million degree solar corona for close to an hour. But Comet Lovejoy is still with us. <laughs> through the corona. No, 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 no. Listen, it flew through the hot atmosphere of the sun. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, gripes of wrath. 
Uh, I would like to gripe about Umberto's last tougher bluff. It was like so manipulative and, and lame. Listen, okay, but it's still pretty impressive. It went through the corona. You would think nothing would survive. That's true. That makes it possible for us to travel to the sun now. <laughs> Why would we want to do that? <laughs> for a tan? There was a movie about it. <laughs> I would like to gripe about laptop speakers. It seems like laptops were not very popular like five, ten years ago, right? People had, had desktops, and then they would buy speakers, you know, and these speakers were, were not great, but they at least had some semblance of sound quality. Yes. Now, everyone has laptops. There's 95% of people out there, their primary computer is a laptop, That's right. and the speakers are very small. And so when I go to parties, people will go, oh, let's let's place music. And then they put music on their laptop because that's where all the music is. No bass. <laughs> no, no bass, no nothing. You can barely hear it. And they have it cranked and you can't even hear it over like two people talking. Oh, Jesus. And I just think, what is our society coming to? Doesn't anyone have a stereo anymore? That's my gripe. That sucks. Have you ever ran into this before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you run into this before? Uh, no, I always had uh, computer speakers in a subwoofer that I would plug into my laptop. The gripes of wrath. So, you know, here's my gripe. Um, there's been all this stuff about noises being heard at night. It's been happening in the last few few weeks or months or whatever. Uh, and there there's no official explanation for it. All, all I hear about is like these supernatural explanations, like it's aliens, it's uh, the end of the world, it's the second coming, the third coming, whatever it is. Like the end of Red State? Is that what the end of Red State is? Have you seen that movie? Are you just giving away the ending of a movie that I haven't seen? Well, kind of, but not really. I don't know, I don't know what Red State is, but it I seems like something I want to watch. The silent, the silent Bob movie? I, don't, I haven't seen that. Oh. I haven't seen it. Oh, I think but now I know the ending. I think you'd like the Red State. It sounds like I would have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but, but it's just my, my gripe is we're di- defaulting to the supernatural explanations with this very interesting and real phenomena. And like, I'm not hearing enough about like, what could it actually be? Mm. So I'm pissed off. You're pissed off. I'm a cota. Do you have a gripe? No, but I want to think of one. Can you help me? Um, hmm. Something about restaurant food, bad restaurant food you've had. What about high heels? You want to gripe about that? Traffic in Seattle? Ballard people? Scruffy jobless people? Sure. All right. My, my gripes of wrath for the day is scruffy jobless people mm-hmm. and that I encounter them in the trendy ish area that i live and or socialize that essentially every man or not every man but several men that you end up dating and i don't end up dating they just ask me out and i say yes and these guys are scruffy and they're jobless or, or they're or they're very underemployed <laughs> and, and they either live with their parents or they don't have a car or they don't have, have any money or they're hawking all their shit to pay their bills and they're pursuing their dreams that's never gonna fucking pay your bills sorry yeah Wow. And you end up paying for everything or picking them up because their bike doesn't have a good, doesn't have a good tire. And that's not going to get us to our date, which you can't afford. Yeah. There's a song about this. What song is that? Bills, bills. If you ain't rolling bypass. (laughs) (laughs) When we had Joe on the podcast, one of his little tidbits was, you know, like dating takes time and money. And if you don't have it. Keep masturbating. I don't remember wow. that. You don't remember that? No. Like, I hope you didn't cut that because that is a fucking good one. It says dating takes time and money. And if you don't you know, have that, keep masturbating. <laughs> that's, that's true. If you don't have the time to date or the money to date because it's expensive and it's an investment in your time and emotions that women need and require, then just keep jacking off. 
Are you available? You can email at contact at psychologyinseattle.com so, with your prospective proposals for dates. And uh, Kirk will review them and send them to me. I'm always interested in meeting new people. Yeah. And if you're a scruffy jobless, please apply. Please don't apply. <laughs> so you're interested in people that have until recently been masturbating, but are now exploring new opportunities. They, yeah, they, yeah. They just got a job and they, they have a lot of time. They're, like, they're in the middle of, of, of going at it, right? And they get the phone call. Oh, 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 I'll, I'll accept. Sick. I sound like a shallow asshole. Oh, that sounds like another movie I just saw. <laughs> God. I'm not. I'm not. I I am, but I'm not. Shallow asshole three. <laughs> All right. This officially My head hurts. has just gone south. All right. That does it for another episode <laughs> of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. Please take care of yourself, people. Honestly, take care of yourself. Say All now. right. Adios. Dios mio.
to 